Welcome to What Does Good Look Like, the podcast that brings you healthy care experts with unique insights into what good looks like and what you can do to get there. I'm Anna, and I'm co-hosting this podcast together with Will. In last week's episode, we met Dr. Paul Wicks, a researcher that has helped thousands of patients with chronic conditions to improve their health by accessing, structuring, and generating their own health data. This conversation helped us better understand the power of digital data and how we can use it to truly take the art of practicing medicine into a science. In this episode, we move on to talk more about the data itself. What information can you get from tracking your own data? And how can you use that to implement better habits? And how much time do you really need to spend on the treadmill to burn off a donut? But first of all, Paul is going to explain some basic health data terminology that you may know of already, but haven't quite found a good explanation for, such as what is the difference between a randomized clinical trial and real-world data? You kind of mentioned some terminology already, such as clinical trials and real-world data. Um, And I was just thinking for people who might be listening to this and not be that into the medical world, for instance, I thought maybe we could just quickly touch upon the difference between, for instance, a randomized clinical trial and real-world data. Sure. So um, really, these are all scientific approaches to answer questions. And certain approaches are better for certain types of questions. Um, The randomized clinical trial um, is best for answering questions of does an intervention, whether that's a drug or you know changing your diet or what have you, um, work? Is it effective? Um, in comparison to um, you know other alternatives, that could be doing nothing. Um, it could be standard of care, which sadly frequently is often a lot like doing nothing. Um, it could be to uh, you know a placebo or a sham surgery or what have you. But it's uh, intended to um, be sort of an intentionally artificial. Um, snapshot in time of a a carefully controlled situation where most of the extraneous variables that would normally confuse us as to what's going on have been filtered out. So the reason randomization is important is because, you know, let's say we had, uh, you know, a thousand patients in front of us and we had an experimental new drug and then we, we were comparing them to people not on the drug. As we see people every day in our clinic, whether consciously or unconsciously, you know, you're seeing, well, the young mother with two small children, and then you're seeing, you know, the 70-year-old person who, you know, is, is very sick with other things. Could we unconsciously start, you know, winnowing the drug, the new experimental drug, over to the people for whom we feel the most sympathy or who might think they get the most benefit? Those types of issues, when multiplied, um, can really completely erode the results of, of those studies. Um, so it's important to randomize so that we, you know, are, are making uh, as neutral as possible a decision about whether you get the new experimental treatment versus the existing treatment um, so that we can be more confident that, that we're looking at the right things. And then what we're trying to figure out is, uh, you know, what is the outcome that's moved? Is it blood pressure? Is it your likelihood of having a heart attack? Is it the size of your tumor? Is it the level of side effects that, that you're getting? So, so the randomized clinical controlled trial is the best way of answering these questions, particularly for a new uh, treatment or a new intervention that comes in. The downside is these are very expensive studies to run. You know, um, if you're doing it in healthy people, it's a little bit easier, but you're not going to find out much there. If you're doing it in patients, then the rarer the condition and the longer it takes you to move the needle, uh, of, of that outcome measure, the more expensive it can be. And particularly to do it to the point where that clinical trial will persuade 
the FDA or the NHS or what have you, that not only should your drug be let on the market, but also to persuade the people who pay for those drugs that it should be paid for, whether that's you know nice in the UK or insurance companies in the US. Estimates for these costs start in the hundreds of millions of dollars, going up to billions of dollars. And so generally the best randomized control trials are frequently only for treatments uh, developed by pharmaceutical companies and others who, who hold the patents uh, on these to sort of monetize them. So we don't have good randomized control trials on diet, exercise, uh, light therapy, well-being, even talking therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy and all the rest of them. So um, real world evidence is much more messy. It's saying, let's look at data that is being collected anyway, in many cases. So maybe your electronic health records, um, you know, uh, maybe even data from devices that you have or, or things that are tracking your behavior um, to sort of say, well, okay, outside of a controlled experiment, how, how are things going in the real world? So the advantage of that approach is you often have big data. So, you know, whilst a clinical trial is often done in two to 300 people, maybe a few thousand people, and they're often from big fancy hospitals, real world evidence often can come from a much broader swathe of people. Um, and that's that's great for looking at big questions like who's using these treatments and maybe what are the side effects of them in a long enough um, time frame. But on the downside, because you didn't randomize and you didn't control for all these extraneous variables, you can find a whole bunch of effects you didn't mean to. Um, so maybe the people on the most expensive drug are just the pushiest people or the people with the best health insurance. Maybe, you know, the, it's not actually that the new drug is actually great. Um, you might find, for example, that when you're trying to draw conclusions from data that was originally designed to correctly bill the insurance company for that healthcare encounter, that it's actually not detailed enough to figure out, well, do patients have this subtype of Parkinson's or that subtype of Parkinson's? Um, and the thing that's frequently missing from these data sets is the outcomes. So what was patient's quality of life? How did they feel about it? What were their side effects? Oftentimes it just has information like, you know, we have this population of people who are diagnosed with this condition. They were prescribed these treatments. We don't really know if they took them in many cases. And then these were their outcomes for the outcomes that took place in hospital, like death, like hospital admission to the emergency room, like, um, you know, the addition of a new diagnosis. But, 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 but that, yeah, so it's hard. Say, on that point, actually, so you did a lot of work on patient reported outcomes. Maybe you, maybe you were just about to and I interrupted you. Maybe no, you no. Could, uh, could actually ex expand on that a little bit because I think that's a really important point maybe describe what patient reported outcomes actually are and then, and then how you've worked on it. Sure so patient reported outcomes are a, a subset of sort of patient generated health data um, and they've really become uh, I suppose they probably started in earnest around the 70s and 80s particularly around oncology and HIV and, and these were conditions where we might reduce people's viral load or we might um, shrink the size of their tumors but the side effects of the treatments might leave them feeling so awful that they're worse than the drug and so it was important to get the patient's perspective not just what does the laboratory say is going on so there were you know, questionnaires developed during that time that have been you know evolved and then brought in uh, across the board so there are something like 2,000 patient reported outcomes or PROs and it's just a fancy way of seeing a questionnaire. Um, but in most cases, hopefully this is a questionnaire with some scientific merit. So you may have filled out a survey you know, as a consumer, you know, did you rate a uh, toothbrush on Amazon out of five stars? Or did you say on a, um, a hotel you know, feedback card, how likely would you be to recommend this to a friend or family on a scale of zero to 10? Well, well, those are fine for sort of market research. 
But if you were trying to figure out how much pain someone's in or how they've been sleeping or what kind of diet they have, you actually need to develop questions that are validated and um, you know, are reliable measurements um, that do what they say they do, that are not subject to biases, like perhaps uh, you know, if you read a question written for an American audience, like a famous one, you know, well-known questionnaire used to say, how often are you full of pep? You go and deploy that questionnaire in Sweden. Uh, what is the Swedish word for pep? Who knows? <laughs> Maybe it doesn't <laughs> translate well. So, so a PRO has been through this validation process where we, we're trying to make sure that it measures what it says it's going to measure. And ideally that when people get worse, the number goes up. And when people get better, the number goes down um, and that it can be replicable in that way. So, so PROs are a great tool because you can give them to patients. And actually, even the act of showing people the 10, 20, 40 questions that are in there gives them a sense of what is the problem space that they might be solving. So for example, on patients like me, we would ask patients with Parkinson's disease about a number of symptoms that we know are common in their condition. And even reading, hey, how frequently has constipation been a problem for you? Made people who didn't know constipation was part of their disease re-examine and reflect, oh gosh, yes, I, I have been struggling with that. I didn't know that was part of the disease. Yeah. Um, and then the ability to track over time um, is, is hugely important because people's memories are poor um, and actually building up a picture of all that time in between clinic visits, uh, particularly one that's quantifiable that you can go back to, is great for spotting trends. Um, and even at the, the most extreme level, could even help you to self-experiment. You know, if I just stop drinking coffee for a month, but I don't record, you know, what my sleep quality was like or how I felt the next day or how I was concentrating or any of the side effects I felt, then I'm actually sort of missing a trick there. Uh, in terms of learning was, was what I was doing actually effective was all kind of you know, a waste of time. So yeah, I think PROs are incredibly helpful. Um, I've been doing a lot of work, both with patients like me and more recently, to get these questionnaires shorter, um, to develop them with input from patients themselves living with a condition, um, and to make sure that we can uh, use the data with more modern uh, analytic techniques. So for example, artificial intelligence um, requires, I think, a level of data quality that is missing in a lot of PRO tools. So many of them were invented by clinicians who, you know, listed off the problems that they saw in clinic and then said, you know, on a zero to 10 scale where 10 is bad and zero is good, how do you feel about this, that and the other? That might give you sort of face validity. It kind of looks like it might measure something. But really, if you try to start doing mathematical analysis with it, you know, a 10 is not twice as bad as a five, for example, in, in, in those types of scales. And, right. um, you know, people respond to even numbers differently in different cultures, uh, to left and right as being high or low differently in different cultures. So they're very susceptible uh, to and these, these types of, of problems. Is most of the data is based on um, sick individuals or, or is it normalized for population? Yeah, that's a good question. Most of it is, uh, so about half of the instruments are sort of generic. And, and they might be fielded in, say, a big, not quite a census survey, but, but very large representative surveys um, in, in uh, countries like the US or the UK. Um, but no, they are mostly disease specific. Right. And the challenge is that ignores the fact that most people with a serious medical condition probably have multiple comorbidities. But that's one point, but it would also be interesting. I, I, this is not a thought through response, but it would be interesting to see if these kind of questionnaires can pick up say pre-diabetics before they're even type 2 diabetics you know you often if you have poor blood sugar control you often are more irritable 
uh, you're sleeping in a different way, all these kind of things, and whether or not you could actually... So start... pick up on more subtle changes maybe yeah, before... The, before you've hit a threshold and you're diagnosed with the disease. Yeah, I, I think there are certain areas where they're, um, they're, they're better at that. I mean, so PROs have traditionally been used in mental health for a lot longer. I mean, it, it, this may sound a little strange, but if, if you look up the, the sort of history of, of one of the first questionnaires, the Beck Depression Inventory, mm. it was actually made in an inpatient psychiatric ward by this uh, psychologist, uh, Aaron Beck, going around and asking patients, hey, what words do you use to describe your mood or how you're feeling or what have you? But prior to that, you know, if you read a report about a patient, it would just come from the, the staff's observations of what that person was like on the ward, or even worse, might come with just a psychiatrist's kind of, you know, Freudian psychodynamic interpretation of their relationship <laughs> with their mother, um, rather than, you know, data that's actually useful there or could guide the treatment uh, of, of, of that patient. And, and what's, what's a little shocking is that instrument is only about 50 years old. Oh, so you have to kind of wonder what yeah. we're doing before then. And so, uh, you know, if, if you broadly want to split medicine in half, you can say, well, there's the half of medicine that can be measured with physics, blood pressure, blood sugar, um, you know, volumes of stuff, breaks of bones, uh, size of tumors that we could, you know, physically put your thumb on. Those are the parts of medicine we're pretty good at. Take all the stuff you can't measure depression, fatigue, uh, sexual dysfunction, uh, you know, motivation, apathy, memory, those sound an awful like all the things we're bad at, pain, you know, um, and really I think this is the, the, the PROs are an ability to um, actually develop sensors um, that could, you know, help build feedback loops and, and learning systems that would allow us to sort of maybe bring those um, under, under measured and, and under treated conditions up to the level of you know, uh, diabetes management or uh, cholesterol measurement or, or what have you. And that, that, that remains a major challenge for all of medicine. Yeah, and I think you could probably extrapolate that to a uh, more broader sense. And I was thinking, so you were kind of mentioning how we're good at the things that we can measure, but it's, it's harder with those things that are harder to measure. And I'm thinking, you know, for healthy individuals, when it comes to lifestyle changes, those can be measured but it often takes a longer time to see an effect and so i think part of the problem especially to keep people motivated is that you may not see the effect or the effect may not be as quick as you would like it to be and then after a while you lose motivation but if you're able to track and you you're able to actually go back and you can see these maybe incremental changes but that over time adds up um that could that can help a lot yeah no absolutely and i i think Part of what you're getting towards is people's mental models of how much of a change they need to make in order to see what kind of an effect are, I guess, pretty poor. Um, I think people are over-optimistic about, I mean, just to take a simple example, I think they're over-optimistic about the impact of 40 minutes on the treadmill at four miles an hour. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, incredibly over-optimistic about the fact that that's earned them an extra donut. Um, when in <laughs> fact it's it's probably I'm sorry but uh, a donut ban for life and you know two hours on the treadmill at, at eight miles an hour um, consistently two or three times a week for you know three to six months before you're going to notice effects um, that say other people will notice or comment on or make you feel good or make your wardrobe change um, and then to sustain that through for, for a long time is very very hard um, I'm painting with an extremely broad brush there but I guess what I mean is people's expectations are not set very clearly there how much extra work do you need to put in to burn calories from that donut? I'm Dr. Kush Joshi, 
a sports and exercise medicine consultant and I'm here to help you answer that question. Calorie expenditure is unique to each individual, based on multiple factors including one's weight, height, gender and the type of activity you're doing. But let's put this in context. The UK's favourite donut, the jam-filled donut, has roughly 250 calories. So for a female who weighs 70 kilograms, to burn calories from that donut, that would mean having to walk fairly briskly at around 3.5 miles per hour or just over 5.5 kilometers an hour for an entire 60 minutes. Now, at the same speed, a man of the exact same weight would need to walk around 50 minutes to burn the same amount of calories. Because, as a general rule of thumb, women burn less calories than men when doing physical activity. Um, and so I think it can be very difficult, um, particularly when the default settings on food and exercise and transport are sit on your bum, eat lots of sugar, eat lots of processed food. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's actually very expensive computationally, cognitively and, you know, cash in your wallet wise to break out of those defaults. So, so you know, rather than blaming or shaming people individually, um, I think we need to understand, well, what, what can we change about the default settings <laughs> to, you know, get better results. I think you're right. I think the default matters. Uh, but one area I would push back on slightly would be uh, around expectations. I wonder whether, you know, the expectations are there. You know, it might take two months to lose X amount of weight by having to do a large amount of exercise. But maybe the problem is you have this. Uh, so within behavioral science, you have the, what is it, parabolic discounting or something. So it's hard yes. to you, you discount the benefits in the future. Uh, so it doesn't seem as valuable to you in the present moment. But maybe that's where technology can come in, with whether it's questionnaires that give you some form of progress or whether it's some other way of, of driving a more immediate uh, impact. Because that's yeah. going to have a physiological impact. I or, mean, reducing, the or reducing the immediate benefit of the donut. Yeah. I can tell you today, I did a high-intensity session and I'm testing this Freestyle Libra and my blood glucose level went up to 10 millimoles while fasted. So that's a really high level for anyone that doesn't know well, that is. So I can see immediately that I've been uh, been pushing myself pretty hard, and that uh, that you know that has an impact on my behaviour. That makes me want to do it again. Yeah, and I, I have friends that are um, proper doctors who who you know uh, look after uh, cardiovascular disease and, and diabetes who who are you know a hundred times more knowledgeable than I am about this area. So I know I'm way over my skis here. But what I will say is what you've what you've hit upon there is the feedback loop. And I guess my point is people, whether it's weight management and diet or it's, you know, Parkinson's disease and, and how my pills are doing, we just need to build them feedback loops and, and they will learn pretty quickly because that's what our brains were conditioned to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, we, we were brought up in a built environment with technologies that certainly our genes had no <laughs> pre-warning of yeah. um, that, that, that we've been able to learn. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, when you operate without feedback loops, you, you stumble like a, a blind person in the dark and, and kick into the furniture. And unfortunately, that's what it's like to have a medical condition. So the extent to which we can operate, or, you know, build in feedback loops from people about their behavior um, or even the way the health system is treating them, by the way, you know, to these points that I made earlier about bad, bad setup and good setup. Why isn't it clear to you when you are going through a medical condition where you live or what have you, that actually, you know, your particular postcode is probably the worst place to have COPD because the team is bad, the pathways are bad, the environments are bad, what have you. And to actually understand that, you know, if you have the choice to go to that other equidistant hospital, your entire pathway could be 
could be very different. So of course, if we don't give people those those uh, you know opportunities to learn that information and to contribute that feedback data back to the system, you know the defaults are poor, uh, and the you know information flow is laggy and yeah. uh, and also poor. Um, so so to some extent, I, I want to personally shy away from saying okay for this particular condition at this particular level, here's what you should do because that's what doctors do. Um, but, uh, you know, essentially, if we're trying to say, well, we can build data systems and information architectures that would allow those people to improve their practice and see more people if that's what they want to do, or see more of the right type of people at the right time. Um, that's really what, what I get excited about, because, you know, those systemic approaches, um, you know, uh, are, are easy to spread. And, yeah. you know, the, the fantasy scenario to, to go right out to, to what does good look like. So there's this concept that is less uh, attractive now um, as a buzzword than it was a few years ago, this concept of the learning health system, where you know the great and the good clinicians and experts and policymakers will all come together and say, oh, it's a really good idea to use statins in this way. We'll do a Delphi process for two years. We'll do a systematic literature review, and then we'll train everybody on what they should do, and then we'll assess them with the tick box exercise. Um, I think that has its place, but that relies a little bit too much on those fallible humans that we've been discussing earlier. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the academics and professionals and everybody else, the administrators, have all the same fallibilities as these you know, um, individuals that have been talking about who have difficulties making decisions on their own basis. Where I, I have a sort of slightly techno-utopian view is the machine learning healthcare system, which is more like the way you know Tesla solved a problem with their cars being too low and bumping into divots in the road, is that one day they sent a software update out, out over the over the um, over the airwaves and all the cars raised by half an inch or whatever it was um, automatically. Mm. That's what I would like to happen. I would like, you know, the algorithm in the Cuba Libra, not Cuba Libra is a cocktail, the Libra <laughs> CGM that you're using. Uh, we could algorithmically change Cuba Libres in real time as well, but that would be a different <laughs> equation. Um, but, you know, to, to sort of say that actually, you know, we're, we're going to change the way that this population is managed, not through printing guidelines in a medical journal and hoping people read them and follow them, which they don't. But actually, if we were in, you know, a computationally managed workflow, uh, I think it would be much easier to not only um, change, uh, say, guidelines and, and how we do things, but equally to, to do experiments. So, you know, your question earlier to sort of say a little bit more about randomized control trials and real world evidence. Those are not the only two approaches. You know, when you use Amazon, when you use Facebook, when you use Google, you are probably unwittingly a member of an A-B test. You know, so a randomized test that's going on about everything from price to where an ad is positioned to did they use a photograph or did they just use words and, and i know because we've run those experiments um in in medicine those resemble a pragmatic trial uh and and that's a, a fancy word for saying when we don't know which of many different options are uh, are the best for you it seems reasonable to randomize you to one of those you know so if there are 12 different statins and we don't know which one works particularly for you with whatever background you have um, it is no more risky to randomly assign one to you and then to collect data on your outcomes over time. That's very appealing as a data nerd. A lot of people feel a bit squeamish about that uh, and, and, and sort of talk about having some qualms there. Um, but um, yeah, I, I think that uh, the digital learning or you know the machine learning health system has has much more potential for that. Um, clearly, there's, there's a risk that it could be creepy. Um, but, you know, no one is out there funding research of medication that's gone generic. And yet that's probably the bulk of what everyone's taking. 
you know, yeah. your statins and your painkillers and your slightly older chemotherapies and what have you. And we're not going back and refreshing the evidence, given that, you know, generations shift. You know, our bodies are different from our grandparents, from nutrition and height, exposures and what we do and everything. Why would why would we assume that the data still holds from trials that were done 30 years ago? Um, and yet if there's not, you know, a buck to be made in, in, in redoing that, no, no one's going to go and, um, you know, work it through. So I, I think building systems like this are an inevitability. Yeah. <laughs> and the question is, do we wait around for the entrenched institutions to, you know, uh, the, the slumbering giants to sort of fix this? My experience from, say, how entrenched EMR providers in the United States have blocked interoperability would be to say, no, you need to be an insurgent uh, disruptive innovator um, to you know show what's possible and then uh, once you've got some traction you've you know uh, identified some pitfalls then I think you have to change the policy and, and unfortunately it, it may be you actually do need you know governments and regulators and what have you to wield their big stick in order to force cooperative behavior mm -hmm. um, because there's a lot of profit to be made from not advancing too quickly in this inefficient health system that we've somehow managed to build for ourselves unintentionally. I completely agree. I think you've uh, you've actually just nailed the question I was going to ask you, which was, what is your view on the future of this area? But I think you just covered that. So I guess for the last two minutes, I would just be, I always ask this question. I think it's one of the most fascinating is, have you made any changes in your own life based on what you've been working with and what you know and what you've learned over the last 10 to 15, 20 years? Yes, uh, absolutely. So I, I have a, a medical condition, condition myself, which uh, one, one of the ways I manage it is by having a standing desk. Uh, I realized that sitting for, you know, eight to 10 hours a day was was really bad for certain aspects of, of my body. So I don't do that anymore. Um, the other thing I, I, I found, and, and I sort of see this in just some of the population drift data, is that, you know, as you get older, your, your tummy starts to spread. Uh, and you actually have to do more and more work and 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 the thing is it, we're talking about the amount of exercise it, it may not be linear you know it may be that you have to do more and more work as you get older and, and you know other habits and other constraints come in um just to stay on an even footing so um like you mentioned earlier i've, I've moved to doing high intensity um interval training um and uh you know from that behavioral point of view you know i'm despite being a psychologist with interesting cognitive biases i am as susceptible to picking up a brownie as anybody so um but what I do is I, I take those decisions out of my path. So I go and buy all my very healthy lunches on a Monday and I stick them in the fridge. And that way I'm making one decision once on Monday, as opposed to making a decision every single uh, day of the week when I'm in a good mood or a bad mood, or I feel like I need a brownie kind of mood. Um, and so, you know, people call these life hacks, um, but it's sort of about being aware of, uh, you know, the defaults, being aware of your own uh, biases and, and the places you can slip up. Um, uh, and trying to do better. But, you know, I, I am acutely aware that I, I am in a privileged position to be able to do that um, and that it is, you know, it's more expensive and it's slower and I, you know, have to make the time to do that and, and not everyone has that choice. So, um, you know, uh, I, I think we should sort of figure out, you know, what, what is the extent to which we can help find out what is the, the most effective thing to do for, for the many, uh, not just a few from those learnings that we make. Although I think your your uh, your answer actually nails what you can do for the many, which it doesn't necessarily have to be an expensive or time consuming making your own food earlier, but at least giving them, making them aware of the problem and then giving them, I think what is it, implication intentions or something like that, so that they have a plan for for if something does occur. Okay. Make it easy to make the right decisions. Yeah, right? exactly. I mean, it's a, it's a lot of and that can be a digital tool. That doesn't have to be. You know, that's hard to get in a 10 minute consultation with your doctor telling you you've got type 2 diabetes. 
Exactly. Absolutely, absolutely, and and it has to fit in with your life as well because you know you may make changes to your diet. Well, that's great, but you eat with your family, and your family has a particular you know they want a Sunday roast or you know we 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 have a particular cuisine that we eat that you know traditionally uses a lot of butter or whatever it is. Um, you know, if you're swimming upstream, um, you're even more isolated, uh, and it's harder to do that. So. Um, yeah, but, you know, increasingly now, I think there are alternatives, particularly, you know, food is an area where people have so many more choices now. Um, but, you know, if you want to try keto or you want to up your protein to sort of reduce your carbs, it's expensive. And so it'd be yeah. useful to generate evidence that is useful and meaningful to you about whether or not that's worth it to you so that you can actually make that decision and say, well, you know, my shopping basket is going to be 20 pounds a week higher. But as a result, you know, I don't need to, you know, do as much make up work on the weekends running around uh, circles around my village it's <laughs> <laughs> a very good point yeah and maybe to kind of close the loop from where we started this conversation as well the ability to connect with other people so, yeah no absolutely and um i think i think we can learn so much from sort of early adopters and, and people who love messing around with this stuff uh that, that could sort of support um a broader swathe but it's, it's just kind of saying okay where can we where can we change the systems a little bit and uh, this is where i'm interested in things like you know the vegan sausage roll i suspect the vegan sausage roll may have more of an impact on i don't know iron levels and uh, and cholesterol than all the fitbits that have ever been sold for example in this country <laughs> and you because a positive or a negative impact well because of who goes to greg's versus who bought fitbits yeah that's true you know um it, it, we, we we know we know and i can't remember the name of the law um that we spend the most time and resources and whatever on the people who need it least yeah um and so the, the the extent to which we can build systems that would highlight and reward innovations that flip that on its head is probably going to be our greatest predictor of success brilliant i think that's a great ending hey paul that has been thoroughly enjoyable uh, great fab no me lot. too A big thanks to you, Paul, for a great chat. I hope it has been as interesting and entertaining to listen to this conversation as Will and I found it to be taking part in it. I think we all realize the huge potential of health data. It's just hard to envision the specifics of how it would actually work out in practice. We won't solve that in a 30-minute podcast, but I do feel that Paul's insights and experience is a great help on the way. I also hope we've inspired you to some new ideas on how you can use your own health data to be able to quantify the effects of the lifestyle improvements that you make. In this episode, you also briefly heard of the Kushioshi, explained the concept of energy expenditure. In a few weeks' time, you'll hear a lot more from Kush. We'll be speaking with Kush to better understand how learnings from working with elite-level athletes in sports and exercise medicine are beginning to enter everyday healthcare. Next week, we'll cover a topic that is, unfortunately, relevant for many of us these days, sleep, or should I say rather the lack of it. Our next guest is Dr. Hugh Selsek, a sleep medicine consultant running the UK's largest insomnia clinic. They have had such remarkable results that there is now a two-year waiting list. But luckily for you, Hugh will share some of his knowledge with us already next week. So if you're interested in improving your own sleep, make sure that you subscribe to the What Does Good Look Like podcast now so that you don't miss this episode. If you have any questions, comments or feedback, we'd love for you to get in touch. You can reach us directly by email, podcast at meliohealth.com. Or if you make a post on social media, please tag us using hashtag WDGLL. And if you do like our podcast, please help spread the word. You can share episodes with friends and family directly from your podcast app. 
as well as leaving a rating or review to help even more people find us. Join us in discovering what good looks like so that you and your loved ones can stay younger for longer. <laughs>